Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 519. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Minette Norman. Minette is an inclusive leadership consultant and speaker who spent the first 30 years of a professional career in the software industry. In her consulting business, Minette focuses on developing transformational leaders who create inclusive working environments with the foundation of psychological safety. In this conversation with Minette, we discuss her new book, co-authored with Carolyn Helbig, The Psychological Safety Playbook, Lead More Powerfully by Being More Human, published by Page Two. We talk about the quality and application of courage at work, the importance of self-awareness, empathy and curiosity, the setting of boundaries, the inclusion booster, the use of humor at work, and the no interruption rule. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a moment, go ahead and drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe in order to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Manette Norman. Well, you know, we could have done this conversation en français. It is lovely to have you on uh, my show. We've met through our shared passion and understanding of empathy. And you have very recently, through our wonderful friends up at page two, published the Psychological Safety Playbook, Lead More Powerfully by Being More Human. In your words, Dantebo, who is Manette? Norman. Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be here and I'm delighted that we're doing this in English, although I think it would have been a fun experience to do in French. So maybe for another time. So first of all, I do want to say that the book was co-written 100% 50-50 with Caroline Helbig, who is my wonderful partner in crime and now friend, and we've never met in person, but we will. So who am I? I am sort of hard to describe myself in a really succinct way, but this is what I'm going to say. I spent 30 years in the software industry in Silicon Valley. I learned a ton and it informed what I'm doing now because what I do now is I'm an author and a speaker and a consultant. And my focus is on inclusive leadership and team dynamics with a very strong foundation of psychological safety. And I came to that because with those 30 years in tech, it was often not very inclusive. I often was the only woman in the room or the only liberal artist in the room, in a room of engineers. And I just started to see how many people, myself, just one of them, were really marginalized in the workplace. And I wanted to spend this phase of my career helping leaders and their teams change that dynamic and just have a better work experience for everybody where everyone can contribute fully and do their best work. Lovely. So the software industry, uh, you're based in California, so you kind of have a double whammy. You're in software, which is kind of geeky, programmers, and you're in Silicon Valley with all the pressures that go with scaling and performance and everything. And then you were 30 years ago in the industry, so you were pioneering in that respect. How did you succeed? What an interesting question. Yeah, I'll tell you how I got my start and then maybe just sort of how I progressed and 
how that how success showed up. I got my start in 1989 at Adobe. And it was when they were developing Photoshop 1.0. And I was hired to write the tutorial for that product. And I came in with no software background. I had been working for the French Trade Commission in New York before that. And I had been teaching French. Uh, I got this job. It was before there were tech writers or you know, people didn't train in tech writing. So there I was, I could write, I could figure out software. And I'll tell you what made me really successful as a technical writer, which was my first 10 years. And that led to the next move. I was very, very comfortable asking questions because for me, writing great documentation meant making it as clear and simple as possible. And I knew that I could not write that unless I truly understood it. So what that meant is I spent a ton of time with engineers. I would do my homework and then I would go and sit with them and say, explain this to me, explain this to me until I fully, really can synthesize the material. I think two things about that. One is like, I was always willing to be the beginner and, you know, just sort of enter that beginner's mindset and not be afraid to say what I didn't understand. And that I think is in some ways really powerful because so many people are afraid to say, I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? And then the other thing why I was successful in that is that I'm very comfortable talking to people. I love being with people. I, I feed off others' energy. So, you know, I was totally comfortable going to any engineer, no matter what their level and what their genius was, and just asking that naive question. And I think that was the start of my success. And then I eventually got into management, and I spent 20 years in management and leadership positions. Again, I feel like my success was showing up as who I was, not trying to pretend to be somebody else, always putting people and human connection first before technology. To me, that was where I gravitated. It was to the people. And then we could do great work together on technology. But I was never solely focused on technology. That was almost secondary to me, which probably will alarm people in Silicon Valley. But I, I actually think that was the the... What really led to my success is I continuously made great relationships. I worked on successful, like how can we build successful teams, starting with a very small team. And I eventually led like 1,200 people at one point. So how can we do this? And it's all about working better together as human beings. So my first reaction is to say that you must have stuck out like a sore thumb, uh, notwithstanding your feminine quality, uh, the, the fact that you listened and were human in a bunch of geeks, because it's sort of, I mean, they're of course human beings, but they're, they're not known for their connection with people. They're sort of, they have a different style of social ability, right? Yeah. And, the, and yeah, go ahead. Go uh, ahead. And, and the second thing was the, this notion of, of, of admitting your ignorance the uh, Satya Nadella, I, I love what he says. He says, we need to move from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls and have that humility to say, well, I don't know stuff. Back in 1989, that was not the way we rolled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say yes and. Uh, you know, yes, I, I would say I stood out less as a sore thumb back then because, you know, Silicon Valley was just getting started. So there were a lot of what I would call kind of misfits 
you know, there were the engineers who were software developers, but then there were the rest of us. And we all came from different backgrounds. So it wasn't so much that everyone studied computer science. There were the marketing people that I worked with. The, you know, Adobe was very design focused. So I worked with a bunch of designers and font designers and, you know, everyone was sort of a different breed. So I wouldn't say initially I stood out like a sore thumb. Mm. Uh, and I, and I will also say, that even if you're working with the geekiest of the engineers, they too are human. And, you know, I'll remember what, here's just a little story that kind of illustrates how, how this can work. There was an engineer, PhD. He was working on very, very sophisticated elements of postscript. And I had to describe something I truly didn't understand that you needed to understand the postscript behind how something was a, a Bezier curve was drawn. So I spent like, I kept going back to his office saying, Richard, I don't understand this. He was so patient with me because I think he realized like, yes, I am, you know, a genius in this, but we need to explain this to the end users. Manette is my conduit to that. I want to make this work. And so we established such a great partnership that way. It's like we actually saw each other's strengths. And I think, I think that's the trick to working is that everyone has different talents. And when you can appreciate one another's talents, then the magic happens, right? I love that. Well, thank you for that clarification. And and it's true, since I wasn't in the tech industry, I, I didn't really gather what it was like back then. And it makes me think that at some level, I mean, that you and I had a similar role because I was doing the same thing for Wall Street analysts, translating all their work for the brokers and the uh, the clients, the institutional clients. So they would give all their mumbo jumbo, lots of financials and all this. And I would just synthesize it down to some sort of bite-sized information and they too thought i was useful so th that's that's a lovely thing so now your book psychological safety playbook what made you and your uh, co-writer uh, decide to write this and i'd also love for you to describe how you met or quote unquote met your co-author yeah Happy to. So first of all, I want to, I, I need to go a little backtracking before the book, which is how I started to even understand what psychological safety was. Um, because, you know, people talk about it a lot now. It's very commonly described in business literature. But, you know, maybe go back five, six years. I was still in the tech industry. I was in many settings where I actually didn't feel comfortable speaking up. You know, I was a VP. I was leading engineering. I sat at a leadership table with a bunch of VPs. We were all not all, some were very outspoken. And I felt like I had to weigh every word because unless I said something super intelligent and it was very well thought out, I didn't dare open my mouth because I would be marginalized. I would be, you know, someone would eye roll me or just ignore me. And so I had experienced that. We've all experienced that probably at some point. And then I was doing, actually preparing for a keynote that I was giving internally. And I started reading about collaboration and I found the Google study, which you may know about. It was called Project Aristotle. I think it started in like 2012 or something. And it was published in 2015. And that's about the time I found it. And that's where they talked about you know, psychological safety, they uncovered to be the most fundamental and most essential quality of a successful team. So I had this aha moment of, oh, that's what it's called, right? I've experienced it and I need it. And we all need it as human beings. We need to feel that we can fully participate and be appreciated without fear of marginalization or humiliation. So I knew about it. I knew it was important. 
then when I started my own consulting business, which was 2020, I decided, you know, this is really foundational to creating inclusive cultures because I was focused on inclusive leadership and cultures. And I'm like, if people do not feel safe to share their ideas, you're not going to get to that level of inclusion and belonging that everyone is striving for. So I want to learn more about it. And I had read Amy Edmondson's book, The Fearless Organization, which also came out around that time. I think that came out in 2017 or 18. And that is, you know, all the research behind the importance of psychological safety. Safety. And I'm like, I want to learn more. I want to put this into practice in my work with clients. So I signed up for a class in the spring of 2021. And now I'm answering your question. That's where I met my co-author, Caroline, who is a leadership consultant in Germany, had the same feeling as like, I know this is important. I want to help my clients really increase psychological safety. So we took this class that was about running psychological safety assessments. And in the class, we were in a little cohort together and we just really appreciated each other's perspective. And we kind of clicked as you sometimes do with people. And mm-hmm. I was then on someone else's podcast, another leadership podcast from the class. And Caroline tuned in and she heard me talking about my views on leadership and she just really connected. But I said something on that podcast. I said, I can't find any practical information about how to increase psychological safety. The literature seems to stop with the research. And so that's what I said. And then she sent me this email and the email was subject line, crazy idea from Caroline Helbig. And it said, I heard you on this podcast. You and I are really aligned. I also heard you say there's little practical information. What if you and I collaborated on it? So that was the beginning of this connection. And we we started with a Miro board and a Zoom call and just started brainstorming. And we, we really thought initially it would just be like a pamphlet or a brochure that we could share with our clients. And then longer story, which we can get into if you want or not. But anyway, it turned into a book that Page Two published and it just came out in February. Well, congratulations. And I love the fact that you guys haven't actually met in real life and yet collaborated. So proof that you can do stuff and have connection without necessarily being in the flesh. So psychological safety um, and inclusion. I want to get into... Uh, this idea of creating, let's say, game-winning ideas. And if everybody has the same mentality at the table, let's say that they all come from the same schools or the same set, things go quicker. Yes. Because everyone gets the lingo. And and yet where we often talk about the needs to have different types of minds in the room. Do you find that the issue is not having enough psychological safety or not the right recruitment? Both. (laughs) I think that's such an insightful question and like really a lot to unpack there because like, first of all, yes, it's as humans, we are drawn to people who are the most like us. And that's why companies are full of, you know, white males and, you know, or people who all have the same socioeconomic background. We gravitate to the people who are most like us. And it's the easy, it's easiest for us to work with people who think like us. However, and there's lots of research about this, which you know as well, that the innovations and the breakthroughs do not come from people who all think the same way. It's really when you get a new point of view that comes in that makes you think differently and and really disrupts the status quo and the group think that can set in when you have very homogeneous groups. So uh, to go to your question, you need both. I mean, you have to recruit 
obviously you want to have people from diverse backgrounds, diverse thinking, diverse education, and it's going to be harder. Like there, you know, there's lots of, of evidence that having more diverse teams is more challenging because we don't have that natural comfort level. So we have to very deliberately work on creating the conditions where those diverse team members, people who come from the different backgrounds and maybe don't fit the group norm can contribute. So that's where psychological safety does come in because if they do not feel they can show up with their unique ideas and perspectives, what do they do? They conform to the group norms. So even if you've hired someone who seems very, very different, unless they have that level of safety that this they, they really want my ideas, they want me to challenge, they're just going to either stay quiet or they're going to agree, even if they don't agree. And, you know, it's, it can be very hard to be that, that dissenting voice or the one person at the table who doesn't agree with the group. And I mean, I can admit times where I didn't speak up because the tax was too high to do so, right? It, it takes courage, it takes energy, it takes confidence. And there are times when you have more of that and there are times when you have less of that. And that, that less and more confidence will also naturally be a question of the team, the room, the ambiance, the context, that the history that you have with the people in the room. So if you go back to not so long ago where you didn't feel like you could show up, uh, at least you didn't feel like, you know, the tax was too heavy. Mm -hmm. I mean, after so many years, I, I have to imagine that the issue, and I'm just projecting, was more about the CEO or the leader than it was your colleagues or you. The leader for sure sets the tone. Yeah. And it's, and it can be the CEO or it can be just the leader that you are, you know, who's, whose staff you are on because that's the people you interact with the most. Right. So the CEO can definitely set the tone for the company, but I really believe that um, psychological safety takes place at every team level that you're a part of, and it can be different in different teams. So like I reported to this SVP at one point who he had very strong points of view uh, he didn't particularly listen well to people who differed from his point of view or who challenged. And he set the tone that, oh, you're not going to disagree with this person. You're not going to challenge the prevailing viewpoints at the table. Right. And so that's, you know, that I had in my mind, like, oh, I better be very, very well prepared if I'm going to say something. Whereas I've been in other teams where it was really much the leader definitely said, you know, I'm open to different points of view. Now that's rare though. That is much rarer. I more often than not had the leader come in as like very strong figure, very strong point of view had the favorites you know they you can the other thing is like when when leaders play favorites and who do they listen to at the table that the right is hand really... the left hand the people exactly. so what do you think exactly i once experienced i mean this is like this is when you know you don't matter i once experienced sitting at a leadership table where the leader of the group made eye contact with some people and not others. And I remember the feeling of him bypassing me with his eyes and feeling I am invisible. I don't matter here. My voice is not welcome here. And so what do you do? You sit back and you go, I need to get out of here. Yeah, when I was saying the CEO, I was assuming that the CEO was at that table, that uh, quiet. I was one. So. I was one level down. I was like a VP right. reporting to an SVP who reported right. the CEO. But yeah, that, that, that could was, be at the CEO level, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely think it's the leader of the room that sets that yes. tone. 
And I'll, of course, at a higher level, the CEO sets the tone as to how he or she then implements it and so on. Yeah, so the this notion of being courageous, uh, which is really the first chapter of the book, uh, you've written about boldly inclusive leadership and, and this notion about being courageous, I think is so important. And it's also not just saying what, the narrative is or or what's pleasing so how do you how do you find the backbone because I, like that like the I want to go back to the person you're talking about who has the strong ideas yeah you it's very important to be able to have strong ideas yes because if everyone's listening to everybody and we love everybody and every idea is really interesting well that is a recipe for never having any decision making right so so talk us through this notion of, of the courage, because at one point you also have to decide and say, all right, I'm, I know four of you guys don't agree with me, but you all do. And that's how we're going to decide. So it's, it's it, it, at some level, you have to decide and sometimes be unpopular with some people. For sure. I mean, leadership is, is hard because you do have to make those tough calls, right? And you don't always have all the information you want. You know, even when, when we talk about like getting all the ideas on the table, it's not ad infinitum, right? It's like you do have to time box things because time is often of the essence. And some decisions require a shorter timeline for decision-making versus others that where you have a little bit more runway. But ultimately, you're the leader of the group and you will be the one who makes the decision and moves forward and is held a accountable for it. So yeah, it's it can be very scary to make those decisions. And I think the best you can do is to try to get all the ideas on the table so that you have the most information you can to make the most informed decision. And you won't always be popular. I think one thing I think about courage in leadership is that having the courage to have your mind changed right? So you come in with a perspective and you think, you know, I am right, which we often do. We usually all think we're right. And you, you do like, let's say you really do create the conditions where everyone feels comfortable speaking up and you hear an idea that makes you think twice. And you go, you know what? I really missed something huge here and I need to rethink this and we need to rethink this. And it actually changes the course of action. I think that's very courageous. And it, you know, I don't know how common it is. Um, I, I'll tell you something, though, that is funny because it was midway up my career as a manager. I was with a, with a VP who was sort of like assessing my abilities. And he criticized me for changing my mind in the fate when I got new information. And I remember at the time I was I was not very senior in my management career. And I thought, really, I'm not allowed to change my mind when I get new information. Now, I later realized that he just was not a good manager. He was not very secure. Also, like he was I think that's a, the courage versus insecurity thing is like if I'm insecure, I'm going to go in with my idea knowing it's right. And I'm not going to let anyone influence me. If I'm more secure, I might be influenced by someone. And in, in my second book, The Boldly Inclusive Leader, that comes out later this year, I actually talk about that. I think that's a strength, having your the ability to change your mind based on new information, not a weakness. And I think that's courageous. It is somewhat counterintuitive. Yeah. So I, I want to I just tap into this situation, people listening who might be in a meeting and they have a contrarian opinion. Mm -hmm. What? What? How do you organize that intervention? 
which is going to be effective. Because, you know, for example, I hear things like, well, I feel that's wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, sorry. You know, how, how do you organize a courageous intervention that will allow you to feel within you that you have, you're, you're, you're going to be effective in that courageous intervention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because you, you don't what you don't want to do in that moment is put everyone on the defensive, because they're not going to listen, right? When we're defensive, we don't listen. We're just in fight, flight, freeze mode, and yeah. we're not open to creative ideas. So I think the trick is, you know, I, I do believe that it's really important for whoever is leading a meeting to make it clear that you do want to hear uh dissenting viewpoints. And that often comes to the leader or the facilitator of a meeting. If you're the person who has the dissenting idea and you want to propose it, you know, there are various ways to do it that I think can give you an opening rather than like shutting everyone down. And it's like almost asking the question, you know, I see, I think what's important is acknowledging that you understood what the person said, like, I'm hearing Mm -hmm. this right? Mm -hmm. You really want everyone or whoever the person is with the strong idea to be heard and know that they've been understood. So I'm hearing this. This is what I understand. And I'm seeing things a little bit differently or maybe very differently. Would you be open to hearing a different perspective, giving the person preparation so that they're not Mm -hmm. shocked by you're wrong, or I totally Mm -hmm. disagree with you, which is automatically going to put someone into that defensive mode. So I think that thoughtful, like the, even the wording choices you use, I'm I'm seeing this differently, not like um, you're wrong, but I am actually having a different perspective on it. And I'd love to be able to share that with you. I'm not saying I'm right. And I'm not saying you're wrong. It's a different way of looking at it. I think that gives the possibility of everyone in the room, including the person you're disagreeing with, to just being more curious. And I think curiosity gets rid of that defensiveness because then we're all open to like, oh, maybe there is another way of looking at this. So it's not easy, I will say. And like finessing that can be really hard. Uh, I just did a I just did a talk in a workshop yesterday for a team, a tech team. And we were talking about having someone actively play the devil's advocate role. When you have a team that gets really into groupthink and they all agree, it's like actually assigning someone to that role. That can be a good way of getting a team used to having more dissent, mm-hmm. right? Just practicing that. Like, okay, today, Justin, and it was just a guy who asked me the question in the room, Justin, you're going to play the devil's advocate. And he said, well, how do you do that without having it be just like this big distraction? You know, that it's like, oh, we go down this rat hole and we waste time. And I think, again, you time box things and you say, like, let's have 10 minutes of dissent and see where that takes us and what we might explore and then come back. So I think there are lots of techniques you can use, um, but the idea is to get everyone more curious about other perspectives. The world's best known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Well, certainly if the leader of the room 
has invited it. It's it's one thing. And I really like what you're explaining. For me, it sounds like an empathic intervention, because what you're doing is, is being a subordinate who's empathic with the person who's above, or notably in this imagining the, it's the boss. Another mm-hmm. situation is it could be like a colleague yes. you're disagreeing with. And that enters, then there's another sort of competition component to that one where you, you know, hey, Jim, you know, um, I hope you don't mind. I've got a different opinion. And, and yeah. you, there's that jousting that goes on yes. now in front of the big boss. Yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I've seen that so much. <laughs> and there's a lot of jockeying for, for position and power often in, in leadership teams, especially, you know, like who's got the boss, who's, who's on the right side of the boss, who's, who's the boss siding with here. That can be really tricky. So in terms of, of so I love the way you present the, the, the sort of the opening salvo, establishing, hey, listen, I hear what you said. And it, are you open to an alternative opinion? Yeah. Now, the, the, the other pieces I'm thinking of are, and I, I have my own idea, but one of them is, well, how, how do you make it convincing to them? How much fact do you think needs to be brought into this? Conviction needs to be brought into it. What are the other elements that will render you courageously successful at pushing into or back on this, being succinct, for example, mm-hmm. do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, of course, I really think context matters because every group is different. Every team is different. Every, different people in different roles respond to th- different things. Like some people really want data, right? If you know, I'm not gonna listen to you unless you give me data. You, so you kind of need to know your audience as well. And I think that's always important. It's like, who am I talking to? What's gonna resonate for them? And yes, being succinct, being really like having a very clear uh, why statement, like why do I think this, set the context and then provide the data if needed. Um, I've, what I have found, and this is particular to the tech industry, although it may be other more scientific industries is that people often start with the details. And they overwhelm you and flood you with details and data when you really want to understand the high level of like, why am I disagreeing with you? Why? And so to me, I always want to start with why context, big picture, then if there's an opening and there's more interest, then you can go into data and details. And so that's, that's where I would recommend is like, Mm. have to really have a convincing argument is like, why is this compelling? Why do I care? Well, this dovetails into the general idea that I have, which is link it to the boss's strategy. Mm-hmm. When she has identified clearly a strategy, which is not always the case, but, you know, hey, listen, uh, Manette, the idea that you had there, I, I uh, would you mind if I give you an alternative opinion? If we reflect back on the CEO's strategy, which says that topic A is really important, what I think would be useful for that would be to do this other activity. And, and so making sure that there's a, there's a link back to the strategy of the company, that bigger why otherwise put, that could be useful to, to make your argument stronger. Because it seems like those egos get in the way. Totally. Pachas and territories get in the way, which have nothing to do with actually fulfilling the strategy. 
exactly. So that's, I'm totally with you on that. Like, yeah, why are we doing any of this? We have a mission here. Like, what's the strategy? What are our goals? What are we trying to achieve? And how does it relate back to that? Yeah. Yeah. And people's careers are, are more thoughtful than the performance. So in the, in the book, there's um one of the things that really struck me uh, and it, I was expecting it, but I didn't see it. You don't talk about setting boundaries, or at least that's, I didn't see anything that really focused on boundary setting, which seems to be the vocabulary that we use when we talk about psychological safety. So I was wondering what you, how you, do you, when you are running a meeting, need to set boundaries? How do those boundaries get set while allowing for courageousness to happen? Yeah. And we didn't, we did, you're right. We didn't explicitly talk about boundaries and that was neither deliberate nor, you know, or it wasn't deliberate. Um, but we did talk about one of the things that we talk about is like making team agreements on how you run meetings, for example. And I think that's where boundaries would come in because yeah. rather than being prescriptive, you know, Caroline and I felt like, yeah, we're going to give you some guidelines here. Like, you know, make sure everyone gets a chance to speak, invite dissent, avoid interruptions. But again, the most powerful, we think, rules of engagement for meetings, for example, are the ones that you set yourself, that you, the team members, agree on. Like, what's important for us? Like, we're a very distributed team. We want to make sure that everyone who's in other parts of the world isn't always having to be up at midnight. That might be a boundary for a certain team, right. but it might not apply if a team is all co-located or in a similar time zone. So rather than doing an exhaustive list of these are the boundary conditions that you should set, the idea that we have is that you co-create those with your team members, because those are the ones that people are going to actually abide by and buy into because you've you've created them together. I love that. That's uh, that's really wise. This idea of co-creation, of course, requires that the boss can put aside the ego enough, right? To allow for everybody else to have a place at the table. In the in the other element that was interesting to me was the who's at the table. Mm -hmm. Because if everybody's to have a voice, but you got the wrong people at the table, uh, then we're not gonna have a constructive idea. And it it strikes me so important to have the right people at the table you can sometimes think about that in terms of personalities, mm -hmm. right? But then who has the, the correct information? Who has the ability at the right level to decide and, and be part? And once they're in the meeting, then everybody should be, in my opinion, always given the right to talk about everything that comes up. As in, it's not just because it's about marketing that the person in finance can't talk. Right. Yeah, no, I think it's really important that you talk about who's at the meeting because, you know, first of all, you don't want to have too small a meeting where it's like group think. It's all the same, the people who think exactly the same way. And we haven't invited diverse perspectives or thinkers or personalities or cultures. I mean, this is also for me really top of mind because I manage really global teams, but I was working for US-based companies that were global. And so often you'd have only people based in the US in a meeting. And I'm like, we have got to get people from Europe and Asia and other parts of the world because they're having different experiences and we are going to miss out on something. So I felt like that was sort of my, I just kept saying that my ED fixes that just coming back over and over that we must have a more, you know, culturally diverse 
set of people at the table. So you don't want it too small. The other thing is, however, is that what I've seen the other extreme is like, we need to be so inclusive that we're going to have 30 people at a meeting and we're going to try to get things done. And it's ridiculous. So that balancing act is very tricky. I will say is like, even as trying to be a super inclusive leader, what does that look like in practicality? Right. That was exactly my point because you know, you want to have enough diversity, but at the end of the day, you also need to get shit done. Yes. And if you're waiting for 30 people to speak at every meeting, it's that's the problem with Europe. 27 people, everybody has to agree. Well, good luck getting anything courageous through that because of the, the notion of consensus will somehow always drag you down, especially if you have to be unanimous. Oh gosh, yeah, I can't imagine how that works. Yeah, the, the idea of consensus, I'm just glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of the time leaders do think you have to get to consensus. And that certainly if you're creating a safe and inclusive culture, we must reach consensus. And I don't, I don't believe that. I think leadership means you do make those decisions with or without consensus. And I think you can make the best, most informed uh, decisions by getting a lot of ideas on the table, but you do not get to consensus. And I think that, you know, that's one of the myths also around psychological safety is that we all kumbaya, always agree on everything. And that's not the case. It's really what it does is it gives you permission to disagree and to have even heated debates in a way where you are debating ideas and you're not attacking each other personally. So people go away feeling they were heard, you know, maybe their idea wasn't implemented, but they were heard. Their idea was respected. It was given, you know, attention. And you can ultimately, as a group, agree with the final decision, whether you, you know, or at least uh, go along with the final decision, whether you agreed with it initially or not. I think that's an important distinction. It's not about cons always consensus building. And, you know, one of the most successful teams I was a part of was early in my career. And it was a group of people. We were all, we represented different disciplines. So we were a cross-disciplinary team working together on a product release. We would have some of the most heated debates. And yet, we all really respected each other and we could have fun even in the debates. Like there was this sense of like, I've got your back and we care about this product. Like to your point about the mission, we're trying to put out the best product possible. And so we're going to debate what that solution is. And then when we make a decision, we're all moving in that direction. And honestly, it was one of the most amazing teams I was ever a part of. And I spent the rest of my career trying to recreate those dynamics. And it's not easy. No. I can imagine. I, I can relate to that. So I, I love the fact that you put on the table the fact that consensus is not what it's about, because there's there's this feeling of this do goodness, which is you know oh it's got to be great, but you know sometimes you know a strategy requires that we cut through, and the thing that often is missing in my opinion, is explaining the why of the decision in a way that makes it palatable for my idea to be discarded. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. exactly. And then to run together with it. And the other piece that I think is missing, and I was on a, I was in a committee the other day and, and we were all talking, and it was more like kumbaya feeling. And I said, you guys, just doing good isn't enough. It, what, you know, a good product, for example. And it's, a, I think it's a, it's a, it's fine to want to do a good product. The, there's like in, in France, we, we talk about a raison d'etre, the, the reason mm -hmm. why. But the French 
55% of CEOs in France suggest that their raison d'être, the reason why, is savoir faire, what they do, as opposed to who they are, être versus faire, to, mm -hmm. to do. And so to do a product is great, but to be something bigger is better. So if you can relate that, whatever that product you're doing to something bigger, that we're improving the world in some way, or doing something bigger than just having the next best Excel spreadsheet. Any, any, any reaction to that? Yeah, no, I think I think that that is ultimately the the motivator for people is like, whether they're in tech or any other field, it's like, I am changing people's lives for the better. Now, it might even be by creating a better spreadsheet, but the, it's not about the spreadsheet. It's about people's experience in the world and how that's going to help them live better lives or run better lives. And so I think always connecting to why are you doing it? Why are you building X? What widget or what tool? Uh, because you're going to help people's lives or you're going to help save the planet. You know, these bigger goals are really what the ultimate motivators for people are. And I think that is how you can get a rally cry for a team to come together, even if they disagree. I, I mean, I, I've always marveled at Steve Jobs for this, not, not a tremendously empathic individual by all accounts, but that notion of the bigger idea and his, I mean, wow, my wife worked for them. So she was really taken by the movement. So another thing that um, I wanted to just break in on was this notion of dissent that someone doesn't feel comfortable talking about in the room. Mm -hmm. And and you, you say, well, hey, you know, if you don't feel comfortable talking about it in the meeting, then use a back channel, use and talk, because I, I let's say I'm an introvert and I don't feel comfortable talking. And then I, you know, but you can use another method, another channel to present your opinions after the meeting. And I was like, ay, yay, ay. That, that <laughs> sounds like there's another problem in the room when that's happening. Because if they don't feel comfortable talking, well, why are they in the room in the first place? Yeah, so totally valid challenge. And I hear you and um, and I'm with you in certain ways. So let me just let me just try to respond to that. So one, I and Caroline and I are not advocating the meeting after the meeting, which is what mm -hmm. happens so much of the time. And what I so mean true. by that is, you know, we have the meeting, you don't speak up, then you have a side meeting with a few people afterwards and you tell why that was all bullshit, right? And that is not at all what I'm advocating. What we are saying there is that yes, we should have everyone in the meeting speaking up. And there may be times where some, maybe something happened in the meeting that didn't get addressed right away. Like, you know, maybe there was someone who felt really slighted in a meeting and, and that didn't get corrected in the moment. And then they were derailed or, um, you know, I'm also very much aware of like, sometimes you've got someone who's not a native English speaker in a room full of English speakers. And it's really uncomfortable, especially you're on virtual meetings. Like you now have to unmute yourself. You now have to like speak in your non-native language and you have limited time. And so maybe the great idea came to you afterwards. And that's more what we're talking about is like, I just couldn't get a word in. Now that's a, that's a problem with how we're running our meetings, right? Uh, we're not using all the technology available to us because what I notice is the people who are 
uh, who think differently, who may have neurodiversity, who may have English as a second language, who are introverted, they are more comfortable using chat, for example. So are we enabling all the technology we have to capture all the ideas? You know, So I think then you're not running your meetings well if someone has to back channel. But there are those times where I would still rather hear the idea. Like if I'm the team leader and someone had an idea after the meeting, I would still rather hear it than not hear it. But what would be important to me as the leader of that team is to come back in the next meeting and say, listen, I got new information after the meeting. We have to actually change something here so we can have this happen in the meeting, but this was important information that needs to be shared. So that's my reaction to it. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. And we're not suggesting that we have these like passive aggressive side meetings, but more like something went wrong in that meeting and I couldn't be heard. Does that help yeah. clarify? Yeah, that for and you? I think that's great because then at least you're not encouraging further back channeling and maybe you can air the dirty laundry about the fact that they didn't get a chance to speak you get in a word uh, and the other whole piece that i thought was interesting is around non-interruption so yes. setting setting the style but there are certain cultures <laughs> where um interruption is sort of the way it goes especially yes. if you watch the round tables they call them round tables at, on television the the nature of debate. Uh, the other day, I I did a debate, the English style, or at least what I call the English style, where you you have a set number of minutes to speak, no interruption. The other the other person opposes, no interruption. You then counter with your and, you know the classic debate, no interruptions, and it's done in a civil manner, timed so that we're not over overrunning. When you're in a meeting, very little time do I hear reformulation of what I heard? Like you mentioned at the very beginning yes. where, you know, this is what I heard you say and you reformulate it. For the most part, we're just bouncing off one another. And for the most part, we're interrupting because we're pre-imagining what, and I'm just going to say this, I've got, I'm waiting to get my time in and push it in. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, first of all, this goes back to our chapter on listening, because often what happens in meetings is you're not actually listening to what the other person is saying. You have something you want to say, and you're just trying to get it. You're just trying to interject. So, when can I place it? When can I say it? Right. And uh, so, the, and I also think there are, um, what would be the word, like innocuous interruptions versus damaging interruptions. And so, for example, sometimes you're enthusiastically like just wanting to amplify or add to, and the person who's interrupted might not even feel that was an interruption. They might feel like, oh, good, you know, Minter is actually doubling down on what I said, and I'm feeling supported here. So that's not an unwelcome interruption. But there are the interruptions. I've been a victim of them, and I'm sure I've done them to others. When someone is trying to say something, and you're not listening to them, and you you don't build on what they said with your interruption. You take the conversation in a different direction. And that person is sitting there feeling like, did I just speak out loud? Or was that silence? Because no one acknowledged what I said. And they feel very minimized. They feel invisible. And those are the damaging ones. Because if they happen time and time again, you start to feel like, okay, my voice isn't welcome here. I'm just going to shut up and sit back and not participate. And those are the kind of interruptions that we do need to interrupt and call out. And like, I actually had a really wonderful experience once with a male colleague 
who I got interrupted and then the conversation went in another direction and he actually interjected. And this is what I recommend doing is he said, hold on people. Manette did not finish. We've just taken the conversation in a different direction. Let Manette finish and then we'll go on. And I was like, that's what we need to do more of because otherwise Manette there sitting there feels like, okay, I don't count here. Right. So that's, and the, and the other thing about cultures, as you mentioned about interruptions, is like, I was reading a study I believe it was Japanese culture, but it was about Japanese culture and how interruptions are actually a very positive thing. I have to find the study. It was so interesting because it's a way of, you know, showing respect and building on. And, and I can't cite that it was Japanese, but it was, it was in some Asian country and that interruptions were culturally a very positive thing. So yeah, they're different in different cultures, but in business meetings, we have to just make sure that they're not having, we're not having too many of these damaging interruptions. You probably read the data that women are interrupted three times more frequently than men, and that's across industries. So that's something to really pay attention to. Yeah. That, that, that's a whole nother basket <laughs> another of things. Podcast. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's a, it's a very important piece because there's notions of imposter syndrome and how there's bluster and and how typically the masculine side is is able to say well i've i think this having never done it before whereas the the woman in the room who's done it five times doesn't feel like she's competent enough to talk and so we could talk about levels of confidence i think there's a an element of risk mm -hmm. in that piece which is a little bit of a different side of it where it's it if you're pushing out a big idea that's risky, you the risk is you know you you fall flat on your face, and and that's you need to be bold in that regard as well sometimes. But when it's too much bluster, and not enough foundation, then it will fall down. And and yeah. I'm wondering if you would consider the man who interjected the interruption would be an inclusion booster. Is yes, that... absolutely. An ally and an inclusion booster. Exactly. And that's what we, we use that term. It's funny. I'll tell you the origin of that term. I gave a workshop to a client, a tech company on, on inclusive meetings, running inclusive meetings. And the head of HR at the company said, and I said, I, I re recommend having a facilitator. And she said, we like to call it the inclusion Yoda. And we loved that. And we absolutely wanted to use that in our book, but we did not get permission to use the term Yoda. So we yeah, we actually tried to get Lucasfilms to give us permission, but nope. So we use the term inclusion booster with the ideas like you're giving someone a boost when they need it the most. And that's a time like when you're being interrupted or when someone, here's another one that happens a lot. And, and again, it happens to women and people for, who are more marginalized is that someone else takes credit for your idea. Like you say something, early in the meeting, it gets ignored. And then someone else has this brilliant idea that's never been thought of before. And you say, you know what, that's a really great idea, Mentor. And you know what, Caroline had that idea earlier. And I just want to call out that she mentioned it earlier and we didn't really pick up on it. That's another inclusion booster move. Nice. Yeah. I, I'm thinking, flashing back to a few thoughts in my mind about <laughs> various meanings. So you, I, the people, I, the sort of like roles that I was thinking of, so you have the devil's advocate role, mm -hmm. you have the inclusion booster. The other one that I know has come out of Amazon up north is the idea of the empty chair, the representation mm -hmm. of the client. And it, it so there's really a lot of interesting techniques that you can bring into making the 
the room allow for more dissent, more interesting things. And if you can create that by gum, it's, it's got to be more exciting. And, and I was just going back to the women being interrupted. I, I, in the book, you talk about how even at, amongst the U.S. Supreme Court justices. Justices, yes, that, that study was done, yeah. Oh, my goodness. But the I, the funny thing for me there was we talk about being non-judgmental in our listening. Mm-hmm. Yet, isn't that the role of a judge? <laughs> of course. And yet they they are supposed to listen. I mean, they're supposed to listen with an open mind before they judge, right? And I I was thinking about this and you know, when you're the boss and you've got to make a decision. So the decision in a in a court of law is of course a judgment is considered, but ultimately it's a decision like the Supreme Court justices do. And and as much as you want to listen to everything, sometimes you just got to come down and lay the law, so to speak. What's the um, last questions, really? Um, well, yeah, I wanted to talk about this. You talk about humor at work uh-huh. uh, and and possibly self-deprecation. And I can't help but think that that is a, an English trait or at least a British yes, trait. Definitely. Um, not a trait common amongst big leaders with large egos. So how does one bring in humor in a way that's appropriate? Because today it seems like a lot of verbiage, vocabulary is no longer allowed. Many topics are no longer uh, permissible because they're going to trigger or potentially offend anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise we end up with humor with nothing. Yeah. I mean, humor is for sure really, really tricky and increasingly so because we're so, you know, trying to not offend and not trigger people. And, and that's important. And I, I'm not saying we shouldn't. Um, I do think self-deprecation can, I mean, is a, it's a really good tool because it's like, it just shows our humanity and it can be just something small. Like, you know, like I, I mess, missed my bus today and this is what how I got to work and like all my foibles of the day. It's like just showing that I too am human. I may be your CEO, but you know, I tripped and fell or whatever it is, just these, these small things. And then I, you know, one of the ways that um, we really injected humor into the last team that I managed is we brought in an, we did a day where we, we had an offsite and we brought in an improv actor and we all did, you know, really silly, nothing scary improv, but we did really silly improv exercises as a leadership team. We laughed till we cried you know, it was the first time I saw one of my staff members laugh. I had never seen him laugh before. But what it did is that it wasn't just that it made us laugh that day. It was that we knew, had new vocabulary and new sort of attitude to come back to when we were having a challenge later. So for example, one of the principles that we share in the book that comes from improv is this idea of no idea. You know, you don't say no, but we can't do that. You say yes, and because you have to accept the idea from the improv actor that came before you. So the yes and idea was our secret code when we were getting into defensive behavior, when we were not listening to one another, someone in the room would just say yes and, and it was our reminder and we would laugh. So there was that little levity that brought us all back and reminded us of, okay, let's listen to one another to build on one another's ideas. And it was very powerful and it always made us laugh again. And it was like, can you bring levity into a difficult situation that opens people's minds and creativity again? So that's why, you know, we're really in favor of it. There is literature that shows that it is really helpful and it is tricky. And I will not deny that it's tricky. Mm. 
because you know like oh well i i i slipped i tripped up when i got off my helicopter coming to work today <laughs> right exactly not there's not gonna be a lot of empathy there for that right exactly and i wanted yeah. to just flip off a, a friend uh don sherman who works at pega he uh did uh, he's an improv guy on the on the side and and we were talking about on a radio show about how really interesting improv of course is empathy and communication relationships that are happening between the people and the listening that happens as opposed to thinking about how i'm going to bounce off of somebody else specifically right. and and they were talking about how what's if you have a bunch of people in a room doing improv when it's really good you don't need to be appointed to be the next person what you're focusing on is what does the room need that's right. That's right. It's very powerful. Yeah. And that, that for me felt like a purpose element mm -hmm. when you're not, it's not about me getting in the funny quip, but what do we as a group want to do at a bigger level to, to, to succeed? And, and, uh, and that's, there's a sort of a feeling of, of endorphins when that's really happening. Yep. Yeah, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. And it's it's also when, you know, the sum is greater, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? Mm. Because individually, you couldn't create this magic. But together, there's something very amazing that can happen when a group is really gelling. And whether it's improv, or whether it's like, how do we release a product that's going to change the world? Yeah, so that getting to that feeling is delicious. I don't think it happens quickly. Mm -mm. And I have to believe it can only really be sustainable if it's gone through hard times. Mm. When you've had, you know, a shitty argument and then you've got through that, then I feel the sustainability until you've had that, that gushy, nice feeling is, is tenuous. It's, it's at, at risk for the next big shit that hits the fan. I think you're onto something. I do think that having gone through hard times together as a group is incredibly bonding and it takes you to another level that you, you don't get to if it's all been smooth sailing together. And if you can get through those hard times and maybe hurt feelings that you then come out the other side of, it's, it's really strong. It's a strong bond and it's, it's not a loose tie or a weak bond. It's like, we really are strongly bonded. We have each other's backs we're going to have hard times together and we're going to come out of that stronger. Love it. On those strong words, Minette, and Plaisir, <laughs> thank you for coming on. Tell us where we can find out more about what you do, your work, get your book, and when your new book's coming out. Yes, yes, yes. So first of all, for the playbook, we have a website just for the playbook, which is the psychologicalsafetyplaybook.com. There's some free resources there and you can get all the links to the retailers. It's on, it's available on all the online retail sites. Uh, I'm at, I'm on LinkedIn, Minette Norman. I have my own website, MinetteNorman.com. And yeah, my second book, The Boldly Inclusive Leader, which I've been working on for many years, finally comes out in August of this year. So I'm excited about that. Congratulations. Maybe another reason to have me on have you on my show. Minette, yeah. merci beaucoup. I, I really think you're you're onto something brilliant. I really like the way you architect this conversation around psychological safety and courage. And uh, I really recommend people grab your book. Thank you very much, Minette. Thank you for having me, Mincher. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Podcast. If you like the show, would like to support me please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. 
You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mintodile.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 